MSW Media. So, Asha, what was up with that bizarre performance from Donald Trump up there in that New York courtroom? Oh, boy. It's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, I have to say, that performance in New York was really something. What do you make of it? My impression is that he has nowhere to go in this case. (laughs) So the best he can hope for is just to turn it into a complete circus and um, make the story about the crazy that's happening in the courtroom versus what the what the evidence is and uh the fact that he's probably going to lose. Yeah, it's really interesting because we I think a lot of people were hyping this up anticipating this is the first time we would see Donald Trump under oath on the witness stand. And I actually think yeah, it was a big disappointment I'm sure for a lot of folks uh because it was just it really was not um Something that you should try to understand is legal strategy at all. I think one mistake that people have made here is they've tried to sort of understand what was happening there in legal terms. And I'm glad that your reaction was where it was. I'm not surprised because I think, you know, my reaction to this is, as you said, this is really about a, it was maybe a disinformation campaign to use one of your favorite terms. Um, it was a PR strategy, political strategy, whatever you want to call it, but it was not a legal strategy because what had happened in this case was early on in the process, Trump's legal team decided there was too much risk to try to actually fight this. He had these criminal cases elsewhere, but also at the time there was real fear by his team, I believe, that the Manhattan DA was going to indict him for this very conduct. In fact, there was a book about it. There's a lot of pot shots going back and forth between uh, former special Manhattan DAs and the current Manhattan DA. But there was definitely that specter out there where Alvin Bragg's like, you know, I'm considering what I'm going to do. Um, and I, so I think he took the fifth, I think 400 and something times in his deposition. Eric Trump took the fifth over 500 times. And I'll just say, there's no way you're going to win a civil case if you take the fifth that many times, because the, the judge in this case, there's no jury can draw what's called an adverse inference and basically infer that those answers would be harmful. So I think here he just got personally angry that he was basically going to be sitting there and going down in defeat. And I think this is more about him feeling aggrieved and wanting to take the stand and wanting to take the stage and, you know, go down fighting and make a big show of it more than anything else. Yeah. So to recap, the legal issues here uh, involve intent and materiality with regard to various falsifications of his business records. So the trial right now is on six of the seven counts that the AG has brought. Um, One of those counts, the judge has already found 
summary judgment in favor of the AG and and that the consequences of that, which was cancellation of his business certificates, is on appeal. But the remaining counts require that intent element, and that's what the AG is trying to prove. Basically, that he falsified these documents for the purpose of getting favorable rates from these insurers. Um, so, you know, so that he could borrow more money at lower interest rates, et cetera, et cetera. And on that point, Renato, one thing I was surprised about is it felt to me like he actually made several admissions <laughs> that would be really helpful to the AG's case. Like he was like, yeah, I'm the expert. I knew more than anybody about the valuations. If, if anybody had any questions, they'd come to me. Um, and he also acknowledged knowing that the valuations were off on several of the properties. So that part to me was surprising because because it wasn't entirely distraction to the, the times that he was responsive. He was responsive in a way that undercut his own case. Was I imagining that? No, I don't think you're imagining that. I mean, it, it's just a, it, it was a purely a damage control thing from his legal team. In other words, if he didn't take the stand, he was still going to lose. It was just a matter of how bad he was going to lose. And so, yes, he lost worse by taking the stand. But I don't, uh, one thing I just want to make sure that we, I put out there for our, our listeners here is that I would not try to understand what his attorneys were doing here as practicing law. In any way, I, I try cases all the time. I'm in court all the time. Um, I would never have my client up at the stand totally unprepared, just riffing and saying whatever off the top of his head with me cheering him on as he's just saying whatever, you know, just di a diarrhea of the mouth. Okay. I would never do that. I also would never cheer my client on and encourage him to attack the judge in the middle of a bench trial. There's nothing like there's no legal strategy to that. That's just absurd. Okay. I, you don't need to be a lawyer to know that that is absurd. And by the way, it is unethical and a violation of rule of professional responsibility 8.2 for a lawyer to engage in attacking the judge and to, and to encourage his client to not obey court orders, which of course they were doing as well. So I just think these attorneys essentially abdicated their responsibility as attorneys and are there just like eating popcorn and cheering him on as Trump is putting on the Trump show uh, in the middle of this courtroom. It's It was really a disgrace. Yeah, it's like they were trolling the judge and he was getting agitated. And I, it sound, it seemed to me like they were deliberately trying to provoke him. For sure. To respond, to, you know, slap some sanction or consequence. Uh, so that then that would become the story. Then they can go and have more fodder to claim that this judge is biased, et cetera. Um, but as I said, I also think you know, he, in his diary of the mouth, what his lawyers have to deal with is the tension between Trump's ego and what might be actually, you know, the best defense for him, right? Like the, I mean, I would assume the best defense for him would be what his son said, which is, I don't know. I have no idea. It was all the accountants. Um, you know, I had nothing to do with it. Not, I was the expert and everybody came to me um, if they had any questions. 
That's right. In fact, he could deflect more than his sons because he could say that it was all in his son's hands and that he was off being, you know, doing other things and, you know, wasn't focused on it. So he had a better defense than them personally. But yeah, I mean, Asha has, in addition to just the factual admissions he made, obviously pissing off the judges, not, not a great thing in a bench trial either. I, I that's why I said I really, I think people make make a mistake when they try to analyze it in legal terms. Like one thing I saw from some commentators is, well, actually, they're going to create reversible error and the judge, you know, is going to make some misstep. And this was not that at all. I mean, I'll just say that I really don't have much concern that the New York Court of Appeals is going to look at this transcript and be like, well, the judge made some stray remark here or there. So we, this merits another trial. They're going to see the full context of what was happening there and understand what was going on. Like there's not a lot of legal hay that's going to be made for Trump here. I view it the way you said, which is that this is really meant to provoke the judge to say something or do something that would, you know, go out in a fundraising email or you could mention on Newsmax or whatever. Um, and, and I do think the judge reacted more than he perhaps should have because he's ultimately the decider and he really could have just been like, okay, I'm going to, you know, listen to it all and then been like, okay, you, you know, you, you're liable and here's all the, the substantial penalties. And he, he warned the lawyers to that effect. He said, if you don't control your client, I'll excuse him, but I'll draw every adverse inference possible. In terms of the appeal, it also seems to me that because the judge is acting as a fact finder, any appeals court is going to give enormous deference to his determinations, a fact, uh, because he's the one who's seeing all the evidence firsthand. He's the one assessing the credibility of the witnesses. So, you know, unless it's a legal issue, his factual determinations, I think, are going to be pretty protected. But, Renato, let's just talk quickly about some of his, de- like, some defenses that were woven in and out of his crazy talk, okay? So one, you know, one is, and I don't know that he made this as forcefully yesterday, but I think he's made it before and you just talked about it's the distancing, right? Like I didn't have anything to do with it. There's also the everyone made money. So why are we here? I paid the interest. They got the banks made money. In other words, he's he's saying that there is no case because there was no actual pecuniary loss. Right. I would call it the no harm, no foul defense. That's very common. In other words, if the lenders didn't lose out and you're being charged, whether it's criminal charges or you're being brought civil charges where you're being uh, tasked with defrauding the lenders, I think that's actually a valid defense. And that's like, a, I would say, a normal, I'll put the quote unquote normal defense that you would raise. Like, hey, it's not an actual legal defense, by the way. OK, I've prosecuted people when I was a federal prosecutor criminally for frauds that didn't succeed. Technically speaking, a scheme to defraud can be unsuccessful, but it certainly takes some wind out of the, out of the sale of the government. And it does raise the question of why this is happening. And I think it's legitimate for Trump to say, you know, Letitia James ran on this and she's an elected official and she's a Democrat and I, you know, no one lost money and so on and so forth. To me, those are legitimate and fairly standard defenses that anyone in his position would raise. A lot of the other stuff, not so much. Well, and I think this is, though, where them being able to elicit that he knowingly provided all of these valuations was important because in the overvaluation, he got lower interest rates. So I think the theory here is had the banks known 
his actual financial condition, including his net worth, if they had known the actual value of these properties, then they may have loaned him this money. They may have loaned him a less money. They may have charged higher interest rates because he would have been a higher risk. And therefore the loss is the delta in the interest that they could have charged him and didn't get and what they ended up charging him. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think you you drew upon the other point that I would have made there is just the liquidity issue. In other words, it's hard to get massive amounts of loans when you're a real estate developer and the collateral is very important. And so the fact that he even got the loans at all, um, the attorney general's office is going to argue that he may not have gotten all those loans. So certainly the lenders were capable of being influenced, use the legal term, uh, by these misrepresentations. So no, I, I don't think legally it helps him at all. It's just the sort of thing that's super common. Like that, that didn't really like, bother me. It's sort of like, you know, Trump Jr. going in there and saying, hey, I was all the accountants and I wasn't focused on this. Like, that's just like standard fare. Uh, it's the stuff where you're like attacking the judge personally or, you know, saying, uh, hey, I was president uh, during this time when you weren't really president or some of that other stuff that w- raised eyebrows for me. Okay. Now, the other defense that he did make, not entirely coherently, but he did bring it up, <laughs> was this whole so-called worthless clause. Right. So yeah. th- this argument is that in the initial paragraphs of these financial statements, there's language, the numbers here have not been audited or reviewed. Trump takes that language as some kind of blanket disclaimer that means that nothing in the document's can or should be relied upon or were in fact relied upon by the banks. They He basically, it sounds like, was trying to argue that this is just a bureaucratic formality where we, you know, push a bunch of paper to the banks and then it's not really clear how he thinks they make a valuation on, on how much money to lend him, but it's not based on this. And so uh, th- any valuations that are contained in here are essentially worthless and everyone knows that. Yeah, I mean, factually, that's not accurate. All right, so that's not... And I, the judge, I thought, did a nice job uh, in his summary judgment opinion discussing that worthless cause. That's something you and I discussed several weeks ago now about this worthless cause. And, and, and it is just sort of bizarre in its face. Like the idea that you would say you'd present a document to a bank for purposes of getting a loan and then you'd have like a footnote or a disclaimer where you're like, all of this is false. Like, don't rely on any of this. It's just, it almost, it, it almost in many ways is evidence of your intent to defraud because it's just showing that you're hoping they didn't read the footnote, right? That says it's all false. That's not what it says anyway, but that's what he claims. I view that as like a PR tactic more than a genuine legal point because the judge had already rejected it. Well, exactly. It it was just strange that he was bringing it up, given that the judge had explicitly rejected that argument in his pretrial rulings. And the judge basically cited case law. This is, I mean, it seems like this is kind of black letter law that you can't use a disclaimer to shield yourself from liability for fraud if it's something that you knew, you know, that's something right. within your scope of knowledge. You can't then, you know, I can't execute a fraudulent contract with you and then put in like a little line that says, you know, these numbers haven't been reviewed so that I can, you know, then, sure. um, 
give you false numbers. Yeah, I, I think, you know, he goes beyond that. I mean, in his mind, it's like, it's just that they're, they're worthless. There's nothing to these numbers at all. And of course, if you had that kind of disclaimer, like, you know, this cures cancer, uh, footnote, really not. It doesn't. Uh, don't take anything I say seriously. I mean, yeah. Uh, I, look, I don't take that very seriously. Um, but I think that's why it's important to get to the broader point is think of this as Trump just diarrhea of the mouth, like riffing on whatever his views are, whatever he's right. latched onto versus some sort of legal strategy. Cause I just don't, I don't view it that way. I think this is going to end up very badly for him. And ultimately, you know, people have been talking about it, by the way, as if the judge has already found liability and it's just about big damages. That's how it's been described on television a few times when I've been a guest. I don't think that's exactly accurate. The judge found liability as to count one. Yes. All these other counts are out there. Now, count one is fraud, so it's a serious count. There's a bunch of other counts that are out there. The judge is considering those. And he's made, I think, some preliminary rulings about potential, you know, what potentially he's going to do here or what he's planning to do. And there's, but there's more that needs to be fleshed out. So I think it's a little bit more mixed than that. But in any event, as you point out, and I think you're you're really right about this to put a finer point on it for our listeners. You talked about the appeal, you know, on appeal. Anybody, you and I were both court of appeals clerks, and you remember, I'm sure, the standards of review, right, and how important that was. And ultimately, it, it, whatever the judge finds at trial, really, or the or jury, if there's a jury, is really hard to review. Yes. So the judge is finding liability on counts two through seven. And then also there's, if if Trump is liable on those, it's about calculating the amount of profit that he made as a result of these fraudulent misrepresentations, because then he has to be disgorged of those profits. Um, and I just quickly want to mention the last, I think, implicit defense that he's making, which is his brand value. So basically, he's sort of like, yeah, that amount may not have represented the actual market value, but that doesn't take into account my brand. My brand adds millions of dollars to this. And I just basically pull the value of my brand out of my butt and add it to some number that I've also pulled out of my butt. And that becomes the valuation. Um, I assume that a market value actually includes the brand. Yeah, I mean, look, it's hard to take some of this seriously because, I mean, he said, first of all, he, I think he said during the testimony, Mar-a-Lago is worth one to one point five billion dollars. Yes. Right. Which is seems very dubious to me. But he, he acknowledged that even that estimate was based on it being a residence, which by a restrictive covenant, it cannot be used as a residence. So, in other words, he was basically like in an alternate universe, in the multiverse where Mar-a-Lago is a private home, it would be worth $1.5 billion. Okay, sure. Maybe, yeah, we could we can imagine a, a different universe where the United States Capitol was my private residence or something, yeah. Uh, the, other, the other thing, I mean, he also had other false statements, right? I mean, there was a line of questioning about, I think, the size of his own condo, right? Where it was like, was it how many square feet was in his own private residence? And it was like, was it in the 10,000s or the 30,000s? And it was overstated and he had to acknowledge that. I mean, there's just a lot of problems here. I mean, the numbers really don't lie. And so that's why, you know, if you were actually looking at this from a legal perspective, what you would be like, okay, we're kind of cooked on the docks. 
let's just try to reduce our damage here. Putting this this guy in the stand to throw atomic bombs uh, in the middle of the trial is probably not going to do that. Let's just have him go chill out, uh, drink some pina colada somewhere, uh, and or whatever he does, you know, throw throw stones uh, at rallies, um, and we'll do our this legal stuff. We're going to lose, and then we're going to go on to these criminal trials, which are more important. I mean, that's the way I think a lawyer would look at this. Um, very interesting uh, difference. But I think he's too emotional. Like, honestly, I think he's more emotionally invested in this trial than maybe in any of the others. Because this really gets to his identity. Yeah. His self-identity. Yeah. It really does. And I think if, you know, to, to the to the point that he's emphasizing his brand, I mean, this is his brand, right? This His wealth is his brand or the per- the perception of his wealth is his brand and he perceives this judge and the AG as getting to the core of who he is or trying to attack the core and take it away from of of who he is. I agree with everything you said. And I also think my sense of things is he doesn't really listen to his attorneys. In other words, I'm sure there's some conversation that several months ago where his attorneys are like, Hey, we're taking the fifth. This is going to these consequences, yada, yada, yada. And he was like, you know, he just heard like the Charlie Brown womp, 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 womp. And then, then he's like, oh, wait, we're going to trial. We're going to lose. And they're going to tell this stuff to my business and I'm going to be portrayed as a fraud. And he's like, we can't have this. We got to fight. We're going to just lay down in front of this judge. That's, I mean, I think there's this element to which he's barely paying attention to this and now he's mad. Yeah, and so that's mad. why the attorneys are kissing his ass. He's big man. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. I'm Allison Gill. That's A.G. from Muller She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. Back at the ranch. Uh, in DC, Trump is trying to get his January 6th case dismissed. And 
we touched on this before that he's arguing that he is immune uh, because the conduct occurred when he was president and this falls within the outer boundaries of his presidential duties. But he's actually argued a few other grounds as well. And it might be worth going through them because here's the deal is, you know, the, the motion to dismiss, you know, if he is successful on them, then those charges could get thrown out or completely, or at least several of them, depending on if, if a court agrees with any of the grounds. Um, and these are likely to end up, I assume, in front of SCOTUS. Yes, SCOTUS being the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, yes, I agree with you with thousand percent. I'm saying that in case, hey, we got listeners who are like, what the heck is SCOTUS? Um, but yes, I agree. Uh, 100%. I actually think, uh, you know, he added that definitely his team added some meat to the bones to some of these. I think there's actually some risk on appeal. And I've, and the reason I say that, just so everyone is understands, and I don't, you know, I'm, I can already anticipate the angry YouTube comments that this is not like, let's say, Mar-a-Lago, where like people, uh, take steal, whatever you want to call it, classified documents, take, take them home with them after they leave their government employment or contract, uh, all the time. Uh, not all the time, but often enough that there's plenty of prosecutions for that. It's like a very common occurrence. Um, this is an unprecedented case. And the law is being applied in unprecedented ways. And it's because this is the first president to do this. And Jack Smith has made that point very, very forcefully uh, to the judge. But whenever you're doing something for the very first time, there are risks. And I know this. I, I, prosec- I was the first person who prosecuted a statute. And it was a, quote, big deal because I had to go through some of the same challenges that they're going through here. I had spent a lot of time worrying about it and talking to lots of different attorneys all over the government about it because... You know, whenever you're trying to do something for the first time and there's no precedent on it, of course, there's going to be some appellate risk. It is, as they say in the law, sweet, generous. <laughs> A Latin phrase. Um, so cool to say, this is this is how you know that Asha went to Yale. OK, <laughs> she's 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 going all fancy on us. Yes. OK, so. We've talked about the the core argument that he's made. And this one is presidential immunity. And basically, this argument is one where he is is trying to extrapolate from case law in the civil context, which creates a certain degree of immunity for presidential, for actions that are taken within the scope of the president's duties, including and up to the outer perimeter of the the president's duties. So sort of, you know, think of it as there's not this bright line, but some sort of blurred fading out. (laughs) And if if it falls in that fading out area, it would be covered. And he wants to argue that that same principle should apply to the criminal context, A, and that B, what he was doing on January 6th fell in that blur, that blurry area. 
Yes. And we talked a little bit about this one before, but the idea here, just to, so everyone understands why we have such a concept is you don't want a situation where you're making a decision whether to shoot down the plane with the terrorists. And you're thinking about like civil lawsuits that come from the, the fuselage of the plane landing in somebody's lawn or some criminal charge for murder because we got the wrong plane. Like you need the president to make decisions based on keeping the nation safe and so on. That's the idea. But of course, I don't think any uh, interpretation of the president's duties includes like inciting an, uh, an armed attack on the Capitol, right? Yeah, this to me seems like a stretch. And it feels like just given that in U.S. v. Nixon, the court acknowledged the president you know, could be subject to the criminal justice system. This feels like a long shot to me. Um, yeah, I think here's what I would say about it. It, 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 it is and it isn't. I mean, it is a long shot. It's unlikely to succeed, but no one's ever made the argument before because no one's ever been in this position before. So it's like a totally novel c- claim that the Supreme Court would have to determine. I mean, no, there's no law on this subject really, other than just sort of looking at the Nixon case and extrapolating from there. And like, if the Supreme Court is like concerned about this prosecution or wants to go your way, it gives them something. Um, so any defense attorney in this position would make the argument. I just don't think it's a very good one. Okay. So moving on, he then has other constitutional arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first he claims that the charges violate his first amendment rights, right? That they implicate first amendment activity. Um, that he is incurring double jeopardy because he was already impeached for this conduct right. and that this would constitute um, double jeopardy under which is prohibited by the Fifth Amendment um, and that it violates his due process because he did not have adequate notice that the conduct that he was engaging in was criminal. Yes. So maybe just to go from... First to last, the First Amendment one, I think for all these, I'm going to say maybe something that our listeners can't expect. Maybe I'll get some Rotten Tomatoes from our listeners on. There's something to each of the arguments, is what I would say. On the First Amendment one, there's something to it because anytime there's a speech-related crime, this sort of thing comes up. The problem for Trump is that that's probably the worst of the three. The problem for Trump is that there's like good case law because this does come up from time to time. People do incite violence and you, they speak to like fixed prices amongst each other or do other sorts of things that turn out to be crimes, um, defraud people. And there's all sorts of crimes there. So he, he's probably going to just lose on the existing case law that says that, but that's like uh, a speech by a president about issues of public concern. It doesn't surprise me that they're going to make a first amendment motion. Yeah. And the Jack Smith, I think really made a concerted effort to charge crimes that, could withstand this particular argument. Correct. I mean, he did not charge him with insurrection and rebellion, which really would have focused on the speech as the incendiary act that launched people, you know, on at to, off to the Capitol. Um, this is fraud and deprivation of rights. And though his speech, you know, is a part of the overall factual context, it's not criminalizing the speech itself. It's not suggesting that 
the speech itself was the illegal act. Right. It, other than to the extent that, let's say, saying fraudulent things is maybe part of the crime, but that's part of any fraud, right? So that's why he did it that way. I mean, one, I think it's important to harken back to before these charges were brought. I thought, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one, that actually insurrection on the evidence is one of the strongest pieces. Right. Because it's like, you just know he did it. There's no denial about what he did. Um, But the incitement, I should say, to insurrection. But... Um, now we, we can understand, you could see now why he didn't do that because he didn't want this legal issue. He's getting it anyway, but the existing case law out there on fraud and so on is going to be good for him. So I think that one's the weakest of the, of the group. Okay. I think the double jeopardy one is also weak. Well, I'll throw that into the bucket of the first one. No one's ever been indicted for after, uh, 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 an impeachment. And so of course you're going to make this argument because who the hell knows whether or not it counts for double jeopardy purposes. There's no law in it at all, but obviously impeachment's a political process and it's just some BS, you know, result because the senators were in his party and everyone I think understands that. And I think any fair minded Supreme court justice would get that too, but there's no law in it. So I think you're almost like committing malpractice on the defense side if you don't make the argument right but there's you know the impeachment there was no prospect of him going to jail in in other words like the consequence was is it's not just that it's a political process it's that the harm that the double jeopardy clause is seeking to avoid is not even implicated in these two different by, by charging him in the criminal venue after impeaching. Yeah. And I, so uh, an analogy would be, for example, often, very often in my time, both in the prosecution and the defense, I would have a SEC case, let's say where they sue him civilly and then they come after him and indict him criminally. Happens all the time. Happened to the Sam Bankman Freed guy. It happens to some of my clients now. I used to be in the other end of it, waiting in the background, waiting for, you know, sitting there lurking, waiting for the SEC to finish up their their case or their depositions or whatever before I indicted. So they're different, like you said, different penalties, different uh, entities within the federal government and so on. So that's probably a loser, but it's never, it's certainly novel. I mean, it's like legit novel legal claim that, you know, could make its way up to the Supreme court. And I'm sure Trump is looking for that. And I, I don't really fault him for making the argument, but I agree with you. It's pretty weak. Last one is an interesting one. The last one, it, let me explain this one because I had to spend more hours of my life than I would have liked reading every single, I've read every single case in the circuit that I was in ever on this issue and I had to brief it on a new statute when I charged a statute that hadn't been charged. Mm-hmm. Is there's this idea that it, on, as part of due process, defendants receive fair notice that the conduct that they're committing here was actually criminal. And the idea is we can't have laws that are so vague, like we prohibit, you know, being an ass or something. We prohibit being a jerk, whatever it might, whatever it is, things that are so vague that like it's up to interpretation. It, the law, there needs to be some, some clear statement in the law that this is illegal. And I think Trump's going to try to make the argument that he couldn't possibly know that this is illegal. And the problem for him is going to be that Jack Smith wrote the indictment. He didn't. And at this stage of the proceedings, the allegations, in the indictment are presumed to be true. And just as the defendant in my case learned, 
you know, if I'm writing the indictment, I'm going to write it to make sure that I write and make sure that the conduct clearly fits within this. And the way that Jack Smith made it sound in that indictment is like Trump had this preordained scheme to do this. And so even if he disagrees with those allegations, that's not going to help him. They're all presumed to be true. And I think it'll he'll probably fail here. But I think this is the least like sketchy to use a, an Asha type of term, least sketchy of his of his arguments. Well, it's the least sketchy in the sense that it's been made before. But I think in the context, as you said, Renato, in a motion to dismiss, the court will assume the facts as alleged to be true um, and then assess the legal argument. And here, you know, given that they were knowingly trying to submit false state false slates of electors that um, the intention was to not count actual votes i mean he would have to make the argument that he didn't know that those that type of conduct was a crime that's that's a stretch to me that's not very vague by the way Sure. He's going to say, though, I, I thought, you know, you could argue about it, but I had lawyers telling me that was a great idea and I didn't realize it was criminal. Like, OK, maybe the Democrats disagreed with it. Look, I'm not here to be Trump's lawyer. I'm not Trump's lawyer. I have no desire to do that. I just don't want to confuse the like the novelty as being a good argument or the fact that similar arguments are made in different contexts as being a good argument. Like the good argument is based on its strength as an argument. Now, the novelty of it may mean that it's being considered without any other reference point. You know, um, it is sweet generous. But I don't I think they're colorable and if, and I think you're right that his lawyers are right to make them. Of course, as good lawyers, they should make these, but I don't think we should overstate the strength of the actual argument. All right. I'm going to disagree with you slightly on this one. I think there's something to this argument. And I think it will, it, when this gets up to this, to SCOTUS, there will be more votes for this argument than any of the others. In other words, I don't know whether Alito or Thomas, they may vote for some of the other ones. Who knows? Okay. I, I give you that, but I think there will be more than two votes potentially for a count on this. Um, because the argument's going to be, they want to be, they're concerned about criminalizing activity that you could describe in non-sinister terms. I, I don't think it's a winner. I don't think it's going to get five votes in the Supreme Court, but of this crew of arguments, which, uh, you know, they are what they are. I don't think either of us are super impressed with them. I think this is, I think this is the one that is the most plausible. Um, but I don't think it will it will defeat all of the charges that Trump is, is facing. And realistically, I think a jury, a trial, while a compromise verdict is possible, um, there's a, you know, I think Jack Smith probably, um, is feeling good about his evidence and thinks he's going to get a conviction on most, if not all of them. Okay. So his next argument is that Smith doesn't actually allege facts showing that Trump violated these statutes yeah that's another one like whatever that that i think is the weakest that you know basically that the indictment is like insufficient yeah that that's also that's fine i mean that's a lawyer kind of argument where you're like actually if you kind of squint and look at paragraph 14 it doesn't quite say x or y and 
I doubt that they've made that sort of mistake, but okay. That's like, that's uh, that'll throw in. That's probably the worst of the group. <laughs> Nothing novel about that. Yeah. So and they're looking at a, a lot of a lot of the things there is centering around his intent and the failure to establish his intent. Okay, and then the final one is that the charges against him are selective and vindictive. That's going to go nowhere. That's just purely a press thing. And by the way, I will just say, even if you're not Donald Trump and his lawyers, you do often make arguments at this stage to tell a story to the judge. You know, I had a criminal trial that on the defense side where I defeated the Justice Department in the end. And I made a bunch of arguments at this stage that I knew we were going to lose because I wanted the judge to understand that I thought this guy was innocent. And so you just sort of put him, put them out there. So I, I'm not what they're doing here is for their case. It's more of like a press strategy or whatever they're trying to accomplish political strategy. Um, I think the real question here, Asha, and I don't know the answer to this. I'll just say this up front is will, you know, I assume Judge Chutkin is not going to permit any kind of interlock, you know, any sort of interlocutory appeal. Um, and I guess the question is, will she though, if there's a conviction, would she stay serving any sentence pending appeal? And I think that's that she would have discretion on that. And some of these are novel sort of issues. Um, I do, I do think that's what Trump's team is aiming for here. I don't know. I feel like that's horse, horse carting it. Fair enough. You got to get, there's a lot of ifs there, right? Uh, a lot yes. of ifs that we're yes. building into it. But I, I think they're thinking that way. I think they're absolutely yeah. trying to create. They're trying to insulate. They're looking at the end point and then finding a way to basically delay the worst case scenario using some legal. Yeah, I think Trump's legal team's like, Chutkin's not on our side, okay, for all sorts of reasons. She's not our best friend. We're not going to get a lot of rulings our way, and we're in front of a D.C. jury, and we're probably, you know, we're in a tough spot here. The facts aren't great for us, so we're probably going to lose this one. Uh, and if we do, where are we going to be at? Because this guy's not going to want to serve his... uh you know, or, you know, even if in their minds he's going to win, he's not going to serve his term in prison. So they've got to figure out how do they, how do they solve that problem? And this, I think, is, is part of their way of trying to accomplish that. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth. I'm Allison Gill. That's A.G. from Muller She Wrote in the Daily Beans, the premier podcaster for all things special counsel. And I'm Andrew McCabe, former acting director of the FBI and unlucky guy who was right in the middle of getting Robert Mueller appointed special counsel in 2017. And we're joining forces to document the investigations of Trump by the newly appointed special counsel Jack Smith as it happens. Whether it's analyzing court filings, letters, indictments, or prosecution and defense strategies. Or asking questions 
questions about special counsel regulations, rules governing classified documents at trial, or the scope of the probes. We'll be here first thing Sunday mornings to cover the latest breaking special counsel news and answer your questions with the assistance of some of the best experts out there. So follow, rate, and subscribe to Jack wherever you get your podcasts. Your only source for all things special counsel. Renato, we are now into the month of November. Pumpkin spice flavoring is ubiquitous. So how early do you start putting up holiday decorations? And what kind of holiday decorations do you celebrate Christmas? Okay. So first of all, our house right now is all fall themed. So there's a lot of leaves and broom of whatever it is, various fall theme stuff. And my wife puts mulling spices on and, you know, she's really into all that stuff. And Christmas arrives one day after Thanksgiving around that time. And my wife, despite being Jewish, is incredibly into Christmas, like ridiculous level Christmas hype. So she did, I think last year, three Christmas trees or four. In our house. So there'll be like one in the front room, one upstairs and like on the side room for our bedroom, one in the living room. Like it's all over the, we're all Christmas, all in on Christmas. Do you have, well, what, first of all, what do you put up for your decorations? And then do you have any holiday traditions? And we can revisit this because we'll, we've got a while now. Yeah. So. For Thanksgiving, we used to always do, um, one of my relatives would have everyone over, um, and we would do, um, like those sort of, um, uh, those like uh, funny gift things where like, what is it called? You, you know what I'm talking about? Where, where you do like everyone buys each other like a gag gift. Like you, you draw people's names. Everyone draw everyone's name. And so like, let's say I'd have Asha in my thing. Yeah, it's sort of like that, but it's for Thanksgiving. Okay. So we would do that and it would be funny. Like I would get you something that would, people would laugh. Like it would be like a garbage, okay. like a really bad uh-huh. gift. And we would do the sort of gag gift things and have a bunch of food. But she actually, her and her husband are both doctors and COVID hit them just hard, just from her husband's an infectious disease doctor. So they are like, we're, we're done. So we're having Thanksgiving at our house, uh, which secretly frightens me. Okay. Cause it's going to be a big crew at our home. Christmas is at my mom's house and she, even despite having some significant health issues this year, really wants to do it. And my wife and I are going on vacation before Christmas. So she wants to have a small group of us over for Christmas, which my mom makes amazing food and is is an unbelievable cook. So we are going to, we're going to make that happen. Cool. So I have been really good the last few years about getting my Christmas tree during Thanksgiving weekend. And and you get a real tree? So I get a real tree. I switched over, I want to say like maybe three years ago, maybe right before COVID hit. Um, I used to have an artificial tree. It was an artificial lighted tree, but then the bulbs all started giving out and... Anyway, I took that one up to my condo in Vermont. So I used that one up there and have to string like new, you know, other lights on it because the ones on it don't work. And I kind of reluctantly switched to a real tree, but now I love the real tree. 
I love the real tree. That's interesting. I have horrific memories because when I was a kid, I desperately wanted a real tree because we had an artificial tree. And the one year we got it, I was allergic to the tree. Something, either they sprayed on it or whatever. I ended up having hives and we ended up, I was crying because we had to take out the tree. And once we got rid of the tree and vacuumed and everything, I was fine. And then you had to switch to artificial after that. We're back to artificial and it was my fault. Uh, that we had the artificial. I was very disappointed. So I've never tried it again. Now I just do, you know, standard, I mean, I have ornaments that the kids have made and uh, that I've collected over the years, but I am, I do not have the bandwidth and I'm often jealous of the people who do like the Pinterest tree. And I'm like, how do you have the time? You know what I mean? Like they find some, yeah, we don't have that. Yeah. We have like a lot of family though. So when I was a kid, my, both of my parents worked two jobs and my mom would like, she worked at a state farm insurance agent during the day answering the phones. And then she would sew crafts with my grandmother in the evening and they would go to craft shows on the weekends to sell them. And so we have all of these homemade oh, ornaments from my mom nice. and my grandma, which are awesome. Like that was their big seller was Christmas yeah. ornaments, you know, that was like a big seller. So we have all of these. So we have a lot of cool ornaments, but they're not like themed in any way. My older sister stole all the ornaments that we kind of grew up with. What? Yeah. Wow. You need to have like a raid. Do like OJ, OJ style, or you just, you break in. <laughs> I know. I know. I do. I do. I, that's, I should, I should just take like an extra suitcase one year and just pack them up and take them. And then she's, she'll be like, what happened to our ornaments? Um, so yeah, I'm, and for Thanksgiving, I, We'll be staying here. So another decision I made several years ago is I don't travel over Thanksgiving. Ah, so we, yeah, we, I always try to do cause I practicing law. This will change once I'm out of private practice someday for back in government or doing something else with my time. It'll be different, but with law practice, it's hard for me to get away and actually be away and not have lots of client problems any other time other than Christmas because the courts are basically why they're not closed, but no one's filing stuff in Christmas and the government all have use or lose time off. So the FBI and the SEC and all of them are not bothering my clients. So I usually do December. So we kind of like leave either right after Thanksgiving or we leave like, you know, right before Christmas. Yeah. I'm not flying during Thanksgiving week. It's, it's a rough week or during Christmas week. It's a bad yeah. week. So I'll be doing a staycation Thanksgiving and just hanging out with family. And I I like that. Thanksgiving, I think, is probably my favorite holiday. I like Thanksgiving, but not turkey. Wait, we can talk about it next time. I'm not a big yeah. turkey person. So we'll talk about oh. that next time. Okay. Well, I'm vegetarian. So, yeah, we'll have a good discussion. Tofurkey. M-S-W Media. It's no surprise that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. 
So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth.